This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to God Forbid. Is leadership about giving or taking? Machiavelli says power is not just for the taking, but ruthlessly keeping. In China, a thousand years earlier, Sun Tzu said real leaders in battle advance without coveting fame and retreat without fearing disgrace. They only think about service. But isn't it the followers of leaders who are supposed to serve? Isn't that the way it's supposed to go? Well, this debate is not quite resolved from Sun Tzu's time two and a half thousand years ago, but it will be before the hour gets to an end. And on RN Summer, this edition of God Forbid is one of our favourites. Thanks to Annette Pierzival, a moral philosopher and assistant director of the Institute for Ethics and Society at the University of Notre Dame in Sydney. Annette, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Now, Annette, you told me before the show that being a good leader is like being a good athlete. How? Yes. Well, I think um, something that's crucial for leadership is character. So I think to be a good leader, you need not just expertise in a certain area or skills or even the right values and principles as important as that is. But you're actually going to need to be cultivating good moral character or what philosophers call the virtues. Um, And unfortunately, that's something that takes a lot of hard work, takes a lot of time and effort. And so I think there the analogy with the athlete is helpful in that reminder of training and practice that will be needed to cultivate virtues of good character. Uh, So, you know, Aristotle says in order to become just, you have to do just actions to be brave, brave actions. And so it's that repetition and habituation that forms the character. Uh, And unfortunately, there's no shortcut around that. Um, You can't just sort of call into action when you need it without having done that prior work. Well, doesn't that mean all the people who haven't done the work are of poor character, logically? Yes. So Aristotle doesn't have a particularly optimistic view on this. Uh, He would think it's probably too late for most of us as adults and this is something you need to start very early on. But I think... Now you tell me. (laughs) That's right. Uh, But I think what I tend to say to my students in ethics education classes is the time to start is yesterday or if not today. Um, And definitely not to wait until you're out there in the workplace facing an ethical dilemma, but to beginning now working on our characters that it's it's always the time to begin is now in doing that effort and uh, practice. Um, And I think one other element that the athlete analogy brings out, and this may be just in through having been forced to watch too many YouTube videos of uh, Olympic ice skating by my kids, you know, of the couples that sort of throw each other in the air and do those sort of crazy spins. When you watch that and those kind of superhuman feats, you do have that sense, yes, so much practice has gone into this, but also I think it becoming second nature for them and looking like they're doing it without thinking. And that's very much a feature of the way the virtue tradition thinks as well, that there's something about it that, um, say, for the person who has the virtue of compassion, to act in compassionate ways, to be motivated in compassionate ways becomes second nature and in a sense becomes easier becomes habitual for them um, and they can do more of it. Uh, And so when a time of dilemma or crisis comes, they have these habits of motivation and action to fall back on. Uh, And so there you can see how strengths of character really matter for leadership. Well, how did you as a mum deal with the challenge of realising your children were more into figure skating than playstations? (laughs) 
I don't know how to answer that. Sorry. <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> it's one of those questions like, what's the mathematical equation for love? There is no answer. Let's get to our next guest, Sarah Sabah, the founder and chair of Benevolence Australia. She teaches the Quran to Australian Muslims in Melbourne. Sarah Sabah, welcome back to God Forbid. How are you and your, your family faring? Oh, we're doing really well. Thank you for having me back, James. Yeah, we're doing well, as best as possible under the circumstances. What a positive attitude. <laughs> There's no other attitude to have. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I don't want to begin on a downer, Sarah, right. but we are talking about leadership and your yeah. understanding of leadership cannot be separated from when you were 14 years old and, mm. and the greatest leader in your world, your mum, the uh, the moral beacon of your life, died literally leaving mm. you homeless and this little girl mm. was forced to answer questions. What is leadership? Who, who are and who are not leaders and what do I do in my life as a result of these conclusions? How did that poor little girl answer such difficult questions? And I'm so sorry your mum died, by the way. Mm, thank you, thank you, James. Um, it was it was a very it was a very important time. It was a pivotal time in my life that I I would honestly say that my entire journey from then on has been marked by that moment. That was the moment that I really chose to leave myself first and foremost, because my parents were divorced. I lived with my mom. I'm the youngest of five, and so when she left, and she left in my arms, battling cancer for um, a while. And so it was like the rug being pulled out from under me. And then I had these big questions to ask. My parents weren't religious. My parents were actually fashion designers in uh, cosmopolitan Beirut in the 70s. So I came from a non-practicing um, faith household. But at that point, I felt that I needed a compass in my life. And I turned to, to faith and to religion. But what it gave me is the ability to create my own uh, moral compass for myself. And it's those day in and day out practices that allow me the opportunity to, one, find stability, two, find direction, and three, continue living with purpose um, when your mom leaves you at such a young age. Sarah, why did you have to turn to God to calibrate you're obviously pure and well-intentioned moral compass. That's a, that's a very good question. Um, I still remember the day of the funeral and as we were burying her, I was asking all these questions. Where did she go? What's life about? Um, why did she live her life? So as I mentioned, I did not come from a faith background. But all those questions I couldn't find the answer for. Essentially, I was asking, what is the purpose of life? And nothing made sense to me. I mean, I was only 14. I tried to answer those questions, but I held on to God because it actually made sense. It made sense that she still lived on. It made sense that her spirit is still alive. It made sense to me that there is a world uh, to come. And some people often say to me that I held on to God because I was weak. And my response to that is, yeah, absolutely. I am weak. I am a human being and I am weak. And for me, mom gave me a compass within the physical realm the uh, faith and spirituality in God gave me an understanding in the unseen realm and that is what I needed at the time and I continue, continue to need. Sarah Sabah. And now to our next, God forbid, panellist. Dr Andre Lux is a lecturer at Edith Cowan University's Business and Law School with interests in organisational behaviour in Perth. Uh, Andre Lux, welcome to God forbid. 
Hi, James. Thank you for having me on the show. Do events make leaders or are leaders born and then shape events? That's an interesting question, James. Uh, I take uh, a behavior and a development view of leadership uh, similar to what Annette was saying earlier. I think above all, the quality we need from our leaders is authenticity. Now, that doesn't just mean being true to yourself. Authentic leaders are self-aware. And that means having a lucid understanding of your own strengths, your own limitations, and your values. Knowing our talents without being arrogant. Knowing our weaknesses without feeling shame. Andre Lux, why do I get the feeling that you're talking about Donald Trump? Trump is an interesting uh, study in authenticity. It's because the way that we think about authenticity in the public sphere is naive in some sense. We think that as long as you're saying exactly what you're thinking without caring about anyone else but yourself, that's authentic. But it really isn't. But Andre, surely he's authentic. I mean, no one says as a political strategy, I'm going to pick narcissism and see how this plays. <laughs> uh, Donald Trump is, is put across a, a very clear persona that does not make him an authentic leader in the way that we think about it in terms of self-awareness, transparent relationships and internal moral compass. But he's an unaware authentic leader in that case. I don't think I'd use the word authentic around him. Well, this, of course, all goes to the question of what makes a good leader. We mightn't be talking about Trump. We could be talking about Julius Caesar or a stranger we've never met. That's all up next. What makes a good leader? George Washington? Moses? Mother Teresa? What qualities do good leaders possess? Well, according to journalist Sean Carney, the answer will surprise you because his book, The Changemakers, he interviewed 25 Australians from all aspects of life to research it. And he, along with Helen Sirkey, the former CEO of Oxfam Australia, tell RN's Hilary Harper that what they found about the qualities of leadership is not what you might think. Here's Sean. What I found was the diversity of styles of leadership and how counterintuitive leadership can be. I spoke to a very, very tough homicide detective in New South Wales, uh, Gary Jubelin. Tough guy, but he talked about the need to have empathy. He nominated that as the first thing you have to have. Now, you might have thought that someone in his game might not nominate that as being the one thing you need if you're going to be a leader, but that was what he came up with. And also people in the community sector came and said you had to be hard-nosed with what you do. Helen Zoki, I'm wondering if uh, your experience in leadership has given you any thoughts about whether you can make a leader out of anyone or whether it's something in people's makeup. I think leadership does have a component of ambition about where you want to go. And I don't mean in a monetary sense. It might be ambition about what you want to change, ambition about what you want to contribute. 
And so to that extent, there has to be enough of a kind of energy and sense of purpose to pursue it. But I think Sean's comments are really critical that leadership isn't a, it's not a cookie cutter. It's, you have to be the leader that is, is who you are. And, and that then means, you know, what, what's a contribution that you can make, that you want to make, that you really want to put your energy into? That really means that I guess, yes, anyone who wants to be a leader can, uh, but they've got to be true to themselves in that process. Helen, uh, what do you think other people want from a leader in, in your experience? It's pretty simple and how you get there might be different. So the first thing they want is a clear sense of what your contribution is going to be. And then they want some transparency about how you're going to get there. And people can deal with anything except for uncertainty. So if they have certainty, then they can make a decision about whether this is the path or the plot or the leader that they want to be with. So I think those characteristics are the ones that are really important in any leader. And that's Helen Soakey, Sean Carney before her, speaking with RN's Hilary Harper for Life Matters. We'll put a link to the full conversation on the website. What is your reaction to that, uh, Annette Pircheval? Yeah, I think I would go back to Sean who spoke about empathy. Um, And I think that's really interesting. Empathy is probably a bit of an underrated quality, but I think that's a great shame because it's one that taps into a very powerful tendency of human psychology. Um, And it's one I think we'd be crazy to ignore um, for leaders to not be drawing on, to be cultivating um, empathy or compassion. There's a lot of work being done in philosophy of character that intersects with work that psychologists are doing. And one of the leading researchers is the social psychologist C. Daniel Batson. Uh, And he's done over 50 experiments to try to look at this link between empathy and motivation and action to help those in need. You know, to give an example of one of his experiments, he had a lecture theatre of students and he had the professor tell the students about a student that was in need, something terrible had happened, uh, and then there was a request for help and things they could do to help. And in the control group, they told them to focus on the technical aspects uh, and about how it was being presented and so on. And in that group, about 37% volunteered to help. But then there was a second group uh, and the only difference was that the professor there told them as they heard the story to focus on what the student was feeling, to imagine what they'd be feeling. And so that act of empathy to feel empathic concern for what the student was going through in that group, 76% then volunteered. So that's quite a jump for that very small change uh, and almost double the average number of hours they volunteered to help. So what's the conclusion from this experiment? Yeah, so this experiment and a number of others, over 50 of these sort of experiments to suggest that's quite a powerful psychological tendency in human beings that when we do feel empathy and compassion that this gives rise to a motivation to help to alleviate the need that's causing that pain. And so that's a very interesting thing if that's the case and a very interesting thing that leaders would want to be drawing on um, given the amount of need um, and the need for helping action we see around us to be able to tap into that and kind of work with the grain of human psychology, this incredible capacity we have to feel empathy um, and compassion for those in need and that that produces motivation to help. To not be tapping into that seems crazy. Isn't that interesting, Sarah Sabah, that this field of empirical psychology, you know, Mm. at university, maybe even in the lab to work out 
what this empathy thing is. But yeah. you and other Muslims have been asking themselves what it actually means to welcome the stranger since you were compelled to do it by the Prophet himself. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Um, listening to Annette speaking, I, I was... I was intrigued by if this is a quality that's so important for leaders to have, it requires then being with the people. If we want our leadership, if we talk about any type of leadership, political leadership, companies, whatever it might be, to have empathy and to have compassion, you will need to be with the people. You will need to be part of the people. You cannot lead from a distant tower, from a distant place, as we see our politicians do in, across the globe, where they're not connected to the people. And that's why we're attracted to leaders such as, you know, Martin Luther King, such as Mother Teresa, such as the Prophet Muhammad, such as that they're, they're with the people and they wanted to be like the people. And that's that's the only way we're going to create leaders that are empathetic. Um, and if I can just say what we listened to, what stood out to me the most, especially as a Victorian at the moment, was when it was said people can deal with anything except uncertainty. And I really resonated with that. I never thought about that. But I, we are living in a state of uncertainty. We actually don't know. And I realised how important it is then for leadership to offer hope. Well, Andre Lux, what do you make of this conversation about virtuous leadership? Uh, I found some of the comments by uh, Helen in, in the recording to be quite curious, actually. I would argue that what people want is not so much certainty on the what, but rather vision, purpose, and meaning in their lives. I believe that the why is much more important than the how. If we know why we're doing something, we have a, that sense of purpose and meaning to our lives, we can deal with almost any how. And then we need a, a clear roadmap and plans to achieve that vision. That is more managerial, that is more governance, not so much the role of a leader in my opinion. I see, so, so what's the lesson from this going forward? Our leaders today spend a lot of time talking about the what and the how. They're not inspiring us. They're not giving us any reason to believe in them. And that's why we need meaning and purpose. And to give that reason to believe in them, there has to be the tenderness, what, to confess the failings? I mean, take Churchill, for example, on one level the greatest leader of uh, or one of the great leaders of the century, but then on another level he had self-loathing. You know, there's this argument you have to lead yourself before you lead others. Well, he, he couldn't lead himself, so he led others. And look at what happened. He saved Europe and the world. I think leaders all suffer from... Uh, the same failings and frailties as the rest of us. They're not superhuman. The point is we need to be able to recognize and confront those limitations in ourselves uh, to try and make the absolute most of our strengths. That is how we can support others around us, and that is our job as leaders. But that's our job as people. <laughs> Absolutely right. <laughs> well, uh, Annette Pierceval, what do you make of uh, what Andre says? Uh, I think one of the things about um, times of crisis or ethical dilemma is that they test leadership. And I suppose in the good times, um, you can perhaps get away without that depth of character, but maybe not so much in a dilemma or a crisis, because in those times we realise that this actually matters to us. I mean, it's something I think we, we know matters in our friends, um, maybe in our spouse, in our parents. So the writer David Brooks makes this distinction between eulogy virtues and CV virtues. 
And so the eulogy virtues, you know, you think of the kind of things you would say um, in looking back on someone's life and what mattered, you know, that they were kind or that they were generous and so on. And so we know these things matter um, in our friends and the people we spend a lot of time with. But I think um, times of moral crisis or dilemma also show that uh, we care about these things in our leaders, in our political leaders, dare I even say our business leaders, um, and that the CV virtues might get us through when times are good. But in um, those times of dilemma, uh, it does matter that um, there are these deeper strengths of character to draw on. Well, I've just put my moral virtues on my CV and that's it. Do you think that explains <laughs> why I have, my career hasn't progressed? There's like a perfect unity there. So. Yeah. Well, well, no, I mean, I think we do need both. So we do need leaders that, and I think this has come out recently in some of the discussion with um, people around COVID and people saying, you know, leaders need to be, I suppose, more hard-nosed. They need to be thinking like health economists and making tough calls. And, of course, we do want our um, political leaders listening to expertise and making tough decisions. But I think at the same time we also want to know that they are people of good character, that they are compassionate, that they're kind, that they're honest, that they have integrity and that as they listen to that expertise um, and as they try to form practical judgments about what we ought to do in response to these challenges, that there's those deeper virtues and strengths of character being brought to bear on that. And this is Annette Piercevold. She's moral philosopher and assistant director of the Institute for Ethics and Society at the University of Notre Dame, Australia in Sydney. Also, Sarah Sabah with us, the founder of Benevolence Australia, which provides Islamic educational support, outreach, other programs in Melbourne. Also, Andre Lux, a lecturer in Perth, Edith Cowan University's Business and Law School. It's God forbid on RN. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was, of course, the Baptist minister who led the American civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. His legacy still lives with us, but it came at a terrible cost. King endured surveillance from the federal government, jail and arrest from the southern state governments. Of course, he was ultimately martyred to his cause with an assassin's bullet in 1968. So what would prompt a person to willingly take on a role like that? Why did he do it? Anthea Butler is an Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, she first, and then Professor of Sociology Jonathan Ryder, explained more to RN's Andrew West. I would say there have been attempts to secularize Dr. King and turn Dr. King into Santa Claus. They've tried to make him a very happy figure who went after civil rights and take away all the very hard prophetic things that he had to say about America. So when I hear Republicans and other conservatives talk about Dr. Martin Luther King, they sort of quote a couple of things from the I Have a Dream speech, and then they forget everything else he said. Mm -hmm. And so I mm -hmm. think part of what we're fighting is to recapture that stridency and the fierce urgency of now of Dr. King's voice at a time when we realize that civil rights have not had the progression that they need to have in the United States. Jonathan, there was a great moment of moral and religious clarity for Dr. King in 1956. Can you recall it for us? It's that kitchen table moment, which is as close 
as one gets. I don't think King technically had a born-again experience, but early on in the Montgomery boycott, he's been chosen. He Remember, he went back to Montgomery not intending to be a civil rights leader, and he was sort of pressed into service of the movement. And there he is, and he's leading, and he's being threatened by white racists who are phoning him in the middle of the night. They're going to kill him and blow him up and kill his children and wife. And he sinks down into a terrible panic and a depression, and he goes down to the kitchen, and he bows his head, and he says, oh, you know, I couldn't call daddy. The language when he tells about this moment is very telling. He becomes the child because mom and daddy is down, you know, is over in Atlanta. And he's, he said, and I discovered religion in a way it became real to me. And what he says, I discovered that God that my daddy told me who would make a way out of no way. And suddenly the Holy Spirit fills him because God promised never to leave me. And what's important there, because that comes back maybe a dozen times over the course of his career, he shares it for white audiences as well as black audiences, he's learning the way in which that faith that God will make a way out of no way and God will protect you allows him to go on despite the fear of death. And so as a young man, he's learning to live with death. Jonathan Ryder from Barnard College, the author of a number of books on MLK, also Anthea Butler from the University of Pennsylvania, both speaking with Andrew West for the Religion and Ethics Report. We'll put a link to the full episode on our website. Sarah Sabah, what struck me about that conversation is that everyone knows Martin Luther King. Everyone knows the I Have a Dream speech. Everyone Mm. knows every secular achievement he ever made. And Mm. yet here was this story, as we just learned within the last... 120 seconds was in a way even more important and who's ever heard it that was quite beautiful i hadn't heard that before no but how is it that we haven't he's the man we're supposed to know so intimately Hmm. is it because we have an aversion to bringing god into the leadership space and what that means and how people are motivated by god consciousness and awareness Well, how would you go about the task of explaining Martin Luther King without being religious? Well, I've always seen him as religious, so I've never separated the two. But I can understand how people want to, as as it was said, you know, secularize Dr. King and make him into Santa Claus um, because it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Andre Lux, is it possible to sort of break down... Dr. Martin Luther King into bite-sized chunks and then reconfigure them, or is this just a desecration to his memory? Uh, I like to think of people in not in their entirety. I think trying to label someone, oh, King was a great leader, or King was religious, or King was secular and saved the segregation movement. I'd rather look at their actions as discrete instances of leadership and meaning. So he did something fantastic. Yes. He also had a strong uh, religious and moral conviction to him. And I don't think we need to necessarily try and and make him about one thing or the other, but rather see uh, all the good he's done in his achievements. And we can apply that kind of perspective to uh, all our leaders today. We shouldn't be looking at, is Jacinda Ardern authentic or is Trump authentic? Look at their behaviors, look at incidents and see how they've handled themselves. And uh, Annette Pircheva, what do you think about this? Yeah, I'm 
so someone I really, whose work I quite like at the moment is Martha Nussbaum, uh, and she loves uh, Martin Luther King and would actually argue that part of what makes him a great leader was this use of strong emotion and of um, drawing in the religious imagery and uh, symbol and that it's that appeal to the particular and the concrete um, in, in its very specific forms, you know, verses of the Bible and so on in his, in his speeches that makes him such a powerful leader. So rather than abstracting that away, that that's actually part of its power. And I think part of Nussbaum's challenge in pointing to, to this is to say that in a way, liberal political philosophers, who she's sort of delivering a bit of a critique to here, have avoided this emotional terrain at their peril. Um, and liberal leaders have avoided it at their, at their peril. Um, oh, liberal here in the sense of Rawlsian kind of liberal. Yes. Uh, they may have excellent principles and very good reasons for that, uh, may have all the right data, but that they're going to need to enter this sort of feared emotional terrain um, and figure out how to cultivate strong emotion and motivation for their projects if they're going to be motivating and stable. And so she points to someone like um, Martin Luther King and that bringing in of strong emotion and concrete particular imagery and so on uh, as crucial for that. It's not bringing in just emotion, it's bringing in God and you've hit the nail right mm. on the head, yes. Annette, because uh, this is the right gets it wrong when they say, oh, look, we're just like Martin Luther King. Uh, you know, um, there's no identity politics. If we all pretend racism doesn't exist or matter, then we can all be blameless just like King. Uh, we'll just think black girls and white boys can walk up the hill and be judged from the content of their character, not the colour of their skin. It's a wonderful idea, but they misrepresent King's legacy when... Uh, the right takes them on, as does the left. The man who insisted on racial freedom, but he insisted it could only be achieved with cosmic companionship, a terminology that would repel the secular left. That's why he said, give us the ballot and we will send to the Congress men who know not only the pang of the human, but the glory of the divine. He's quite mm. explicit. Yes, and um, that's another thing that came out in that story from the second speaker around the role of the Holy Spirit, which is incredibly important uh, in the Christian tradition. And when you're talking about character as well, the idea really is that the Holy Spirit affects character change and is at work through our efforts and that there's a kind of joint activity going on that adds to those efforts. So in the earlier analogy, I was talking about training like an athlete and, and putting in that work. There's no substitute or shortcut for that work, but there's this sense that the Holy Spirit is at work through it and can add to it and can open up possibilities. And uh, that's very much a part of, of um, the Christian view there. So Sarah Sabah, what, that's a Christian perspective from Annette. What's yours? Mm. I, I resonate with that immensely. In terms of leadership, if we take it back to the most simplest of forms in the Islamic tradition, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, says, every one of you is a shepherd. He gives this analogy, every one of you is a shepherd and, and every one of you is responsible for their flock. And so this idea of leading oneself first and foremost and that leadership is a responsibility and it is a trust and that's where faith comes in, in the Islamic uh, belief that there is a world to come and therefore you'll be responsible for this trust. This idea that everyone has a responsibility. I, I embody leadership in different forms as a mother, as a wife, as a, as a chair of an organization in different ways. And this idea of being a shepherd is that the role of the shepherd is to keep the flock safe, is to ensure that they have, you know, water, they have food. And it's the selflessness that takes place. And it's 
it's doing the mundane. There's no glory in being a shepherd. Nobody wants to put on their resume, I'm a shepherd. There's absolutely no glory in it. But we also have another saying in our tradition that the leader of the people is their servant. And so if you really wish to lead, you serve and you do it without any recognition, which is contrary to the leadership models that we see today. So in reality, a leader is one who is in service to their people, service to their family, and they must embody these attributes, these virtuous attributes that we've been speaking about throughout this conversation internally first. And so the way a leader shows up in the public sphere, they must show up in the private sphere first and foremost. It's no good telling me that I'm not paying attention to my spouse or my children or my home affairs, but I'm a brilliant leader outside. There's a, that, there's a contradiction there. And so a true leader must work on their internal state, first and foremost, their home affairs, and then that embodiment shines on the outside, whatever that may look like in whichever position that may be. But I think today we are too preoccupied with the outward form and we compartmentalize, or that's the home business, or that's their personal life. From the Islamic perspective, you cannot compartmentalize. If you are taking a responsibility position, then we must try and align our entire personality. Andre Lux, last word on this to you. Uh, Thanks, James. As you know, I don't subscribe to any particular religion myself, but I have faith. And I believe that having faith is essential to everybody. Without it, life is empty and meaningless. What's your faith in? I have faith that there is something beyond us, and that gives me strength. That gives me direction. So I feel the role of our religious leaders today must therefore be one of instructing people, not in a specific doctrine, but of helping people to find their own faith, of nurturing the development of our faith, of supporting us, and above all, inspiring us. Pope Francis uh, comes to mind frequently as an example of an authentic religious leader who's doing just that. And as We as a global society, we're lucky to have him and others like him who inspire our faith and work to unify what is a very fractured society. But let's just play a mind game and say Pope, and that's true what you say, he's a very popular Pope, not just uh, Catholics but beyond. But let's just say he say had a uh, sea change and says, I want to move to Canberra and run for politics in Australia to become Prime Minister. All that warmth would be gone and we'd say how disgusting to have a cleric in office. So I mean, the, the, so the well, I don't know. I'm, maybe I, maybe I'm wrong in saying that. Maybe I just think that perhaps it could be the case. And if it is, then the question I ask myself: all those qualities you mentioned seemed universal. I mean, you can't stop being a, a good woman or a decent man just because your job changes. Of course not. Uh, saints are all around us. Uh, there are decent people in an indecent society. I would have no issues with uh, a religious person in, in a political office any more than I would have issue with a, someone who's been a, a street cleaner coming and working at a university. Well, you're, you know, obviously open-minded to, uh, you know, a, a broad extent, but you must see there'd be a large section of society who would be uncomfortable with appointing a cleric to their leadership regardless of his religion or doctrine. 
I, I tend to agree with, with Sarah that we, we need to be much more consistent and holistic in our approach. Uh, if we are in a secular society, does that mean that our leaders have to have no one religion that they subscribe to? They have had no religious training in their past. No, that seems silly. Or, but we do need to make sure that they are inclusive and respectful of all of the different castes and creeds of people under their governance. Yes. Well, Andre Lux, thank you very much. Up next, we'll test character and leadership under pressure, especially. It's God forbid. It's one thing to lead when all is going well, a profitable company, an election victory preceded by increased prosperity. But how do you lead during the tough times? Rachel Robertson is the youngest female Antarctic expedition leader to Davis Station, and she's written a book about leadership, Respect Trump's Harmony. You see, when Rachel encountered a disaster learning of an Antarctic plane crash 500 kilometres away from where she was stationed, fate threw her into leadership against her will. And what did she learn from this experience? ABC's Trevor Chappell found out. And that's absolutely correct, and particularly during tough times. So when we had this this plane crash that I just mentioned, um, my, my head was spinning my head, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I have no idea how to lead. I was leading a search and rescue for, to find these people who were stranded 500 kilometres away and my head was spinning. I'm like, oh my goodness. But if I had gone out to my team and they said, oh, what's happening? And I said, well, well I, don't, I don't know. I've got no idea. I've never led a search and rescue. That doesn't instill confidence and poise. And I think even now as a mum with my son, I need to, to have that poise and confidence during this, this lockdown and say, well, we will get through this. And, and your shoulders back and your head up and, and that calmness and optimism that we'll get through this and that's what I had to do with my team in Antarctica say look we got this and, and let them know this is this is what we're doing these are our plans for a search and rescue but I think it applies to any leadership role in, in the home or in the community or in the workforce that when it's tough that that poise because people are looking to you and they'll, they'll pick up cues from your behavior so if you're panicking and your behaviors all jittery and oh my goodness and you know that doesn't instill confidence and I think that's a really important factor that you've just raised about that calmness and the optimism and yeah we'll, we'll get through this we will. Can you be damned if you do and damned if you don't? I was thinking about the Prime Minister and when the bushfire started and mm. there were questions asked about why he wasn't here and why he wasn't leading from the front when a lot of what was happening was state-based. And I understand that there's a role of a leaders, whether or not they have something to do directly, there's a leadership role within that. And then when we came to the coronavirus thing that was happening now, he was sort of told that he shouldn't be interfering too much in the states and that it was state responsibilities. So it seems that as a leader, especially in things like of a country and of large organisations, you could be damned if you do and damned if you don't. It's a fine balance. It's a really fine balance. And that judgment is so important. I think the most important message is is you need to be seen to be leading and whether you have an active role or not. And I think Christine Nixon will, the Commissioner of Police will vouch for this during the 
Black Saturday bushfires down uh, in down in Victoria, that um, even the, the police don't have a large role in in fire response in most states. They they sort of look after the road closures and evacuations, but it's the fire agencies that actually manage. They're they're in charge. And if you follow the the command and control system to the letter, then the, the commissioner of police has very little input. But you still need to be seen to be leading. You need to be present. You need to be you know in the background of the the briefings and actually seen to be leading. Yeah, you can be damned if you do, damned if you don't, but you need to be seen to be leading and, and getting information out there regularly, you know, every every couple of hours if you can. And even if that information is an update to say, look, I have no further information, um, you, otherwise people fill in the gaps and often that gap filling is worse than the reality. So you need to just get the information out there. That's Rachel Robertson. She led the 58th annual Antarctic expedition to Davis Station. Uh, she had to rescue uh, a plane. After crashing, she was speaking with ABC's Trevor Chapel. We'll put a link on the God Forbid website. Well, I mean, Annette Piergevold, her, her message was basically act like you know what you're doing and then the troops will come into line. Obviously, uh, working at the ABC, it's something I've never experienced from our outstanding leadership. <laughs> but, I mean, it, is that an uncommon thing? Is that how it works? Yeah, I mean, there was a little bit of that, so act like you know what you're doing and uh, I think that does fit a little bit with a virtue tradition, right? So you don't know how to be a just person or a compassionate person, we'll start doing those kind of actions and start forming that there's no need to to wait you can you can begin but i think there was a little bit more as well it wasn't just only that it was also she emphasized being present being alongside uh, and i think that's really crucial and goes along with what i was talking about earlier with compassion and empathy uh, and i think one area we've seen that recently is in the sort of way that virtues which are really central to profession the healthcare professions are uh, nursing have been elevated and I guess their moral import has been recognised um, and, you know, we've remembered why we value them so much. When Boris Johnson first came out of uh, hospital after having um, survived the worst of sort of the COVID-19 bout that he had and he, he did that sort of video, uh, sort of hyperbolic, you know, our NHS cannot be conquered and uh, love powers it and so on. But a lot of it was him sort of describing the virtues of the nurses and doctors and healthcare workers that were there alongside him. So two who stood by his bedside for, you know, 48 hours and every second of the night watching and tending and thinking and caring and making those interventions. And this idea of healthcare professionals who are putting themselves in harm's way to help those in need and to stay with them, to be alongside them, to be present to them. I think, you know, that's really come out as an incredible example of, of a virtue that we see the need for in this time. Well, Sarah Sabah, what do you think about what Annette's been saying? Well, I, I think I want to reflect on the piece that we just heard because the poise and calmness and optimism that we expect from leaders at a time of crisis, for me, as I was listening to that, I, I'm reflecting on my leadership style now with my community during this time, and I can only bring that poise and calmness and optimism from a faith perspective, within a faith perspective, because God has this and there's an ultimate bigger picture. And I see the role and the important role of spiritual traditions during times of crisis more than ever. And most of my work right now during the COVID time with my community is really realigning people's compasses when turbulence misaligns people's compasses. Um, and especially with, as we live in Australia, we are quite 
and we're not used to turbulence such as this. Uh, I personally, my parents escaped civil war in Beirut and I come from Syria of origin. So I've seen my home country being destroyed. So turbulence and tribulation such as this is something that we've become resilient to. And the one thing that usually gets affected the most is people that don't have an anchor. If you don't have a, a very strong anchor, and in my community, it's spiritual anchor. And this is where faith for me becomes really important. Thank you, Sarah Sabah. What about you, uh, Andre Lux? Uh, I'd like to, to add some reflections. I feel that when we face an external threat, we spend our energy to protect ourselves from it. What we need from our leaders is to help us feel safe and confident and competent again. And to do that, our leaders have to put our safety first. Now, if I look around the world right now, I, I, people only have two concerns, their health and their financial security. That is prime on everyone's mind. And when our leaders are putting these priorities first, our natural response is to trust and cooperate. We're social animals, and I believe that we want to live by each other's happiness and prosperity. The problem is when our leaders don't make us feel safe, when they stoke fear and cast blame and divide us, then we have to spend our own energy to protect ourselves from each other, from the external threat, and from our leaders. And with that comes a complete breakdown in trust and cooperation. It becomes a great deal harder for us to move forward together. I understand, Andre, but if you, but if you, I mean, if you require of politicians that in order to be moral they must commit political suicide. One, one can see the outcome. It's You're not making it easy for them. Leadership isn't easy, and I don't think it should be. How is it reasonable to expect political leaders not to factor in self-interest? I think there are people among us who want to help others, and whilst looking out for their own interests, but not in a way that is to the detriment of those around them, we can all prosper if we work together. James, can I inter just say something here? I think the problem is, is very much in your question. You're talking about politicians having personal interest. I feel that is the problem right there. If we're talking about leadership, it must be for the welfare of the people. It cannot be I, a personal interest. I agree completely. Well, that's uh, Sarah and Andre who have that view. Annette, do you too or do you accept that? Politics is a jungle, and the deal is the currency. I think, um, as I, I think I was talking about this earlier in the show about the way crises expose leadership and what you might need to be a leader through the good times versus a moment of crisis. And I think we certainly need leaders who are able to make tough choices, who are listening to experts, and who are getting all the information. But I think as well in these times of crisis, we realise that they also need to have a depth of character and strengths of character. We want to know that we care about this in our friends. We also care about it in our leaders, that they are people who have integrity, who are honest, who are compassionate, and that those strengths of character set them up for these times of crisis or dilemma. Um, and yeah, and that their strength of practical judgment in seeing the way forward in what we ought to do and in ordering the goods in what's good for the community. There's going to be competing goods and you're going to need to use practical wisdom, practical judgment to figure that out when you're a political leader. And the more of the virtues you've cultivated over time, uh, the better position you're going to be in to do that. So being a good person in that sense is not something that makes you a weaker leader, but is actually the depth that feeds strong leadership in a time of crisis or, or dilemma. 
That bit I understand, but Sarah Sabah, what I can't understand is the other side, all those great leaders who were personally deeply immoral, all those great men and women who were fundamentally flawed, who'd caused shocking damage in their their families and so forth, but changed the world with their qualities. Some people mm. were horrible at home and changed the world mm. for good. Mm-hmm. So, so do we praise or curse them? I, I'm not going to praise or curse them. The human journey is about having self-awareness and to do that one must cultivate the virtues within first and that automatically, once one works on themselves, they become a beacon of light onto others. So I'm talking about leadership that we must raise the bar higher than simply accomplishing things on a physical level. We're talking about a spiritual level where I can overcome my own self. I can overcome my own anger. I have my own greed. My own love of power is a disease of the heart in the spiritual world. And I would argue that the majority of people that enter leadership have a severe love of power and love of fame and grandeur. And so from an Islamic spiritual perspective, you, you should not be taking on that position. That is Sarah Sabah, somewhat hypocritically, because fame and grandeur has been visited upon her by virtue of the fact that she is on God forbid. And um, <laughs> But we love having her and we love the quiz, which is up next. Wits End. Yes, it's Wits End, the God forbid quiz. As always, we begin with the buzzers, starting with Annette Pierzevold. Test your buzzer. Andre Lux is our next God forbid contestant. Test your buzzer, which is perhaps the most and least ethical business of all. Here's the buzzer. There's no business like show business. And finally, Sarah Sabah, who started Benevolence Australia 12 years ago and has worked almost every day and night since. Test your buzzer. First question of the quiz. Most people know Chancellor Angela Merkel as Germany's leader, but who is the president of Germany? A, Frank-Walter Steinmeier. B, Max Baden-Baden-Magenflagen. C, Werner Herzog. Or D, Steve Gutenberg. Take it to your leader. I'm going to say A or D. <laughs> you are quite right. A, it's Frank-Walter okay, Steinmeier. He is the uh, the president of Germany. Have a listen to this video. This is the time to show up. If there was ever a rally to get to, if you've missed all the other ones before, this is a rally to get to. We don't have to be brash, we don't have to be loud, but we do need to stand up. In the spirit of Martin Luther King Jr., stand up for Australia. So uh, the question is, what was that ad for? Stand Up Australia Day. It was the protest on the 5th of September, wasn't it? Can't you be more specific? No, you've got it exactly right. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Sarah. Yes, the uh, the Freedom Day anti-lockdown rallies. Well That's done. It. Now, this is a round of this or that. I'm going to say a name and you have to guess whether it's the leader of an alternative religion or a writer of fiction. Is Sean McMullen, a sci-fi author who wrote the book Voyage of the Shadow Moon, or the creator of The Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, or 
Pastafarianism for short? No idea. <laughs> you are correct. You have no idea. He is the Australian <laughs> science fiction author. Pastafarianism was created by Bobby Henderson. Uh, mm-hmm. Final question. Claude Voredhon, is he the author of the Outlander series of books or is he the creator of Realism, a UFO religion founded in France in the 70s? I think you gave that away. (laughs) Did I? (laughs) He's the creator of Outlander. Incorrect. Oh. (laughs) He's actually the founder of Realism. RN's beloved Rachel Conn has interviewed him. Maybe we can get a link up on the God Forbid website. Certainly you'll Google it. Uh, It's worth a listen. Um, You may not end up following him, but this is... (laughs) The nature of religion. But hopefully you will follow the God Forbid podcast and the God Forbid program, which has been nothing but for the help today of Sarah, Annette and Andre. Annette, thank you very much. Thank you. Annette Pierjavol is the moral philosopher and assistant director of the Institute for Ethics and Society at the University of Notre Dame, Australia. Sarah, thank you. Good to have you back. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Sarah Sabah, founder of Benevolence Australia, providing Islamic educational support and outreach programs in Melbourne. Good luck for the future. Andre Lux, thank you, Andre. Good to meet you. Thanks, James. Nice to be on the show. Andre's a lecturer at Edith Cowan University's Business and Law School with interests in organizational behavior, leadership, and cross-cultural studies. It's God forbid, it's RN Summer, where we're revisiting some of our most talked about episodes. I'm James Carlton. Thank you for your company this week. Until next week, remember to be good. This has been God Forbid. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.